Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Swalcox. In this week's edition of Insight, forget COVID, forget earthquakes, forget the weather. It's regulation time. We check the series of once in a generation reforms that come into force this week. Actually, don't forget about the weather as tornadoes, hail and rainstorms point to a tumultuous storm season. And it turns out this introduction is its own natural disaster as we can't forget about earthquakes either. Well, hello everyone. On the panel today are publisher Terry McMullen, managing editor John Deeks, deputy editor Wendy Pugh and senior journalist Bernice Han. Hello, John. Hi. What would you like to forget? Pretty much every Ashes series that takes place in Australia. <laughs> apart, from, apart from 10, 11. I'll remember okay. that one. And good morning, Bernice. Good morning, everyone. Anything you've forgotten? Uh, not really. <laughs> okay, well, Kiora Wendy for our New Zealand listeners. Did I get that right? Hello, Andrew. <laughs> and hello, Terry. Good morning. I almost forgot you. How could I do that? Quite simple, Andrew, really. It's all, it's all about short-term memory. <laughs> okay, so on to this week's main stories. A host of reforms inspired by the Hain Royal Commission comes into force, but the industry says, we got this. Bernice, we've been detailing this for a while, but what are the key changes? So the ICA has described the reforms as once in a generation, and they're quite spot on. So um, five key changes that are of um, significance to the industry. On Friday, we had the new re- new breach reporting regime. That basically means that insurers have to report to ASIC any significant breaches of their obligations. And today, we see another four measures coming into effect. There is the deferred sales model, anti-hawking rules, design and distribution obligations, or DDO as they call it, and duty not to make a misrepresentation. So with the deferred sales model for add-ons, it essentially means that there must be a four-day pause before the sale of a primary product and the sale of an add-on. It works in conjunction with the anti-hawking provisions, which puts certain prohibitions on insurers offering products to consumers while selling them other kinds of policies. And with the DDO, insurers must design products that are likely to be consistent with the likely objectives, financial situation, and needs of the consumers for whom they are intended. And importantly, there must be a target market for the product. So if they can't establish a target market for that particular product, it means that product shouldn't even be sold in the first place. And with the duty not to make a misrepresentation, it now means the burden is on insurers to get the information it needs to determine if it will take on a risk and at what price. So that basically sums up the um, five key measures that are taking place uh, this month. And what is the industry saying about it all? Yes, um, we had the ICA coming out on the eve of October 1st, Thursday, last Thursday, saying that um, the industry is ready. They have made sweeping changes to their systems and processes in the last year or so. Um, Not only that, they have also invested in the training uh, for their staff to understand the new rules and how it applies. So, and uh, ICA CEO Andrew Hall says that, you know, the industry supports the changes, although he did mention that dialogue is still ongoing with regulators to better understand the changes in the early stages of these changes that, that the industry have to um, comply with. Okay. Well, this seems like a quite a big change. Terry, 
Is this more about the fact that there are so many changes or are these changes quite onerous and large in themselves? Well, the period after the collapse of HIH in 2001, it was probably even steeper when you consider the introduction. It brought in uh, more focused regulation through APRA and ASIC and that came brought with it some massive changes, fundamental changes for brokers and insurers, um, mainly to ensure there was never another HIH. Uh, what's going on now is much more about fine-tuning various standards and introducing the Hain Commission reforms. I think quite a few of the reforms are primarily aimed at controlling very small insurers whose practices have been shown to be, to put it kindly, extremely sus. But they'll also serve to make everyone think hard about what they're selling and who they're selling to. And, and it's really that this regulation has a sort of symbiotic relationship with the rules they've imposed on the life insurance industry over the past couple of years. So is the industry prepared from all this? Well, from all the reports I'm getting, including from my most reliable source, Bernice, there's a fair amount of confidence they'll be able to function effectively. And I'm pretty sure the regulators will go a little bit easy over the next probably year for any technical hiccups. They, they just won't say that that's what they're doing. Well, Wendy, we find ourselves talking about the weather again. Tornadoes have ripped through some regional New South Wales communities and hailstorms and heavy rain also hit parts of Australia. Could this be a sign of things to come for the storm season? Well, yes. Well, the Bureau of Meteorology says it was the first really significant thunderstorm outbreak um, heading into the storm season. And there don't seem to be too many claims from those from that event last week, but there's certainly going to be more storms to come. And all the, the climate drivers around Australia seem to be pointing to, um, you know, a potentially um, stormy summer. And the, the Bureau has been uh, monitoring for a, um, a La Nina event, which typically is associated with a higher chance of rain and flooding. So, yeah, it could, could be, could be um, an active season. Well, John, everyone on this podcast today is, uh, is a dirty Victorian. The ICA has continued to push governments to work on a plan to address the hard border issue, hasn't it? Are we going to be able to, well, not us personally, but are people going to be able to sort of transfer across borders to, uh, to solve these, um, these crises when they come up? Yeah, well, the, the Insurance Council is really worried about this because when you, when you have a major claims event, and as Wendy says, these, these storms thankfully don't appear to be that yet but there will be a major claim event and the insurance council points out that when that happens you need to get people across state borders very very quickly so that could be insurer staff it could be assessors it could be the tradesmen that are well, tradesmen and women that are needed to rebuild houses and, and and commercial properties and so on so yeah i heard andrew hall talking to the abc just recently and saying that the 2019 bushfires, uh, the claims there were dealt with incredibly quickly and 80% and were closed within a couple of months. And he says if the same happened now, it would be months and months and months before those claims were able to be closed because every state has different rules. It would be a, a, an administrative nightmare to get people across borders and the people that would suffer would be the the insurance customers who 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 lost their homes or or their livelihoods so we need a national plan he says and they're just trying to push that message as hard as they can to anyone that'll listen well our analysis this week focuses on whether australia is prepared for earthquake risk following victoria's record-breaking event 
What did you discover when writing this piece, Wendy? Well, I mean, even though Australia is not seismically active compared to New Zealand or Japan, I mean, we are very vulnerable to huge impacts, even from relatively smaller events, just because um, earthquakes haven't been a focus historically of it, as our cities and towns have, have been built. You know, um, you know, Melbourne doesn't look anything like the, the landscape of San Francisco, for instance, where that is taken into account. An academic in New Zealand, uh, Anne Brower, has pointed out that just simple fixes um, for unreinforced brick and masonry parts of buildings um, just could stop things tumbling over and, and could make a, you know, just so much difference to uh, safety. So, I mean, there's actually, there's plenty of modelling done so that the risks are known to that extent with Australia, but as a community, we're, we're just not very earthquake aware. Is it understandable that Australia is more focused on cyclones, fires and floods, Terry? Or have you left ourselves exposed here? You're many times more likely to lose your home to fire or flood than you are to an earthquake. And even if you are exposed to an earthquake, it's a defined event on most home insurance policies right along tsunami and just after riot and commotion. So I don't think it's a concern. Well, while we've been talking about earthquakes, Wendy, can you take us through the changes that have been announced over in New Zealand? Well, over there, the Earthquake Commission, uh, which is the uh, government-backed insurer, uh, currently covers the first 150,000 of any claim related to earthquakes and some other catastrophes. And the private insurance kicks in for those events above that cap. So the New Zealand government has announced last week that the EQC cap is going to double from over from October next year to, to 300,000. This follows a recommendation to review the cap, which was made by the uh, inquiry into the EQC, which was sparked by, um, you know, the earth, the uh, Christchurch earthquakes. Now, directors and officers premiums have spiralled in recent years, but there are some further proposal law changes that might help the situation. Wendy, can you talk us about that? Yes, well, the, the number of um, class action litigation funders has um, re really increased in recent years, and, and that's partly because of the good returns they are making through the share, share of the proceeds they are receiving. So there's an argument that um, this has got a bit of out of hand and that's fueling class actions and, and increases in insurance premiums. Uh, so the government has introduced laws that would effectively limit the share of the um, money that uh, could go to the funders and leave more for the people who are supposed to be the uh, key beneficiaries of the action. But I don't think anyone's a fan, though, are they, John? Uh, no, not everyone's a fan of these proposed changes, um, mainly litigation funders uh, and lawyers. So the Association of Litigation Funders of Australia says plans to limit fees will threaten access to justice for millions of people. It says the bill is about shielding company directors and executives from the legal consequences of negligence or wrongdoing that results in harm to Australians. And Maurice Blackburn says the proposed bill will cripple the capacity of everyday Australians to take legal action. And it says the government wants class actions declawed and defanged so that corporations can use their power to get away with hurting people. Insert joke about lawyers looking after their own interests here. Well, look, it wasn't long ago that we labelled cyber the new DNO due to crises with rising premiums and capacity. Bernice, S&P have released a new report that crystallises the global issues. What are some of the findings? So S&P is essentially saying that demand for cyber will increase, but there's a big problem, capacity. There's not enough of it to meet the growing demand from businesses who are now more than ever aware of their exposures to ransomware and other cyber incidents. At the same time, the losses for insurers are 
multiplying or going up as cyber threats intensify. So what SNP is saying that to sustain um, the long-term profitability of the cyber line, it thinks that um, insurers will continue to restructure their cyber offerings by increasing rates and adjusting their terms and conditions, particularly the exclusions. It thinks that in between now and 2023, um, rates will go up and double in some cases. But SNP believes that there are other solutions that are worth considering. It thinks that the cyber insurance and reinsurance market would benefit from the evolution of a more comprehensive retrocession and insurance-linked securitization market in the next few years. And this should be supported by government risk pools. It thinks that these are necessary to speeding up the expansion of capacity. And SNP did cite the Singapore government setting up of a commercial cyber risk pool as one that other jurisdictions could consider emulating. It thinks that government pools, government-backed pools could support risk-adequate pricing and underwriting. So um, that, that's essentially what the SNP report is uh, saying. Do you think there needs to be government involvement in cyber, Terry? Well, I think we, we start, need to start looking at some, some alternative ways to, to deal with cyber because you're likely to hear a lot more over the next 10 years as these large risks become mega. Uh, it's not going away. And I, I don't think that we can we can keep, you know, I watched the, the development of the DNO market in this country from pretty much nothing to, uh, or management liability to a point where, you know, it was sucking all the money out of, out of the industry. Uh, and you can see this thing doing the same. So yeah, it's time to get a little bit more inventive. You look at the capacity problems that are likely to remain in the cyber market and you have to conclude that newer approaches really are the only thing we've got. Bernice mentioned the Singapore government's commercial cyber risk pool and the use of insurance-linked securities to bolster capacity. I think that's probably a good way to go. And I don't believe we'll get anywhere on problems like this if we just rely on traditional approaches to risk and covering risk. Well, finally, the ICA annual forum is back, albeit in a virtual format. John, can you take us through the lineup for next week's event? So this is quite exciting for, for insurance nerds, at least. Uh, the ICA hasn't held an annual forum since early 2019, for obvious reasons. And the one-day virtual event takes place on October the 13th. Assistant Treasurer Michael Sucker will deliver a keynote address. He's the minister at the heart of efforts to piece together a cyclone reinsurance pool for Northern Australia. So you would think that will get a mention. ICA President Sue Houghton, who's just started as QBE Australia and Pacific CEO, will provide an update and we'll hear from ASIC and APRA too. There will also be a commercial lines panel comprising John Trowbridge and other industry executives following Mr Trowbridge's recent review on insurance affordability. And there's plenty more sessions besides that too. We'll be we'll be there to cover every discussion that we're allowed to cover. So if you can't attend, you can catch up on all the key points at insurancenews.com.au. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Inside Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Terry McMullen, John Deeks, Wendy Pugh and Bernice Han. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. 
You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, on all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.